I want to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We're actually going to be moving around uh, this morning as we look at a particular topic I think is uh, culturally significant and that we need biblical wisdom on. So in this time in between our series, I'm going to talk about that this morning. Uh, Next week, we start a series in Exodus uh, that's going to take us through October, and so we're really excited about that. But this morning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Let's pray. Oh God, you are holy, holy, holy. As we have just sung, you are sovereign. You have a kingdom that knows no end. And by your matchless grace, you are at work in the world, sweeping people out of the kingdom of darkness and placing them in the kingdom of your Son in love. And we praise you for it. Lord, we are reminded today that there is no sin, no struggle, no person that is beyond the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we are reminded that you as sovereign creator are the one who we must look to for the design of all things. That you are the one that tells us how to think and how to live. Lord, we are reminded that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. And there is a way in which we can step forth. Even when we don't completely understand, but we know what you've said. And that way is the way of faithfulness. So Lord, help us to embrace the way of faithfulness in all things. And Lord, help us to remember that it starts with faith in Christ. And Lord, I pray that any who have come apart from Christ will leave in Christ this very day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When Judy and I began to get serious and spend more time together and ultimately uh, got married, I realized very quickly in the first couple of years that we were different. Um, you know, I'd grown up in kind of locker room culture, and I found out that saying, wow, that's a big bump on your face, was not something she appreciated very much. And uh, she found out that saying, you know, my car is dirty, um, didn't lead me to say, oh, I'll go wash it. Uh, she'd say, well, I asked you to wash my car, and you did, wouldn't do it for me. Well, no, you didn't. You, you said, uh, don't hint, right? We had to work all this out. Our differences led to some relational challenges that still exist, but thankfully not to the degree they did at one time. But more importantly, I realized that her differences from me were a blessing to me. I realized that my relationship with her and having to navigate these differences was sanctifying me. It was making me a better person. And I was blessed because the two had come together as one. 
Then I had three sons, and I felt like I had a handle on how to deal with them, and then I had five daughters. And in some ways, my desires and longings for them are the same. All who look to Christ need to embrace the fruit of the Spirit. I wanted them both to have courage. I wanted them both to be kind. I wanted both my sons and my daughters to to have compassion. And yet in many ways, I noticed they were very different. And some of the ways we tried to get at the things that we wanted embodied in their lives had to be a little bit different. But through it all, I've thought, you know, this is beautiful. This is such a good thing. I can't imagine the person I would be without Judy. I can't imagine the person I would be without my sons and my daughters. They've changed me. Early on, I I just began to celebrate what God had done, and I would go up to my sons and say, I thank God He made you a boy. You are a blessing to our family. And I pray that you will use every ounce of masculinity you have to serve Christ. And I'd go up to my daughters, I thank God He made you a girl. My life is better because you're in our family. And I pray that you'll use every single ounce of your femininity to serve Christ. But we live in an age where there is increasing confusion on all kinds of matters. And there is confusion related to something as fundamental as gender and sex. I read a recent news report talking about a bill that was signed by the governor of South Dakota. But it contained this sentence. It's not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth. And there is no consensus criteria for assigning sex at birth. I I thought, how, how did that make it in print? That is so absurd. Here's how much consensus there is in uh, assigning sex at birth. There's so much consensus that if you're pregnant and the baby is still in the womb... At some point when they're doing a sonogram, the nurse or the doctor asks the question, do you want to know if it's a girl or a boy? And they tell you if you want to know. People have gender reveal parties. There there is so much consensus that we don't even have to wait till the child is out of the womb that we can say this is a boy or a girl. There is so much consensus that every birth certificate of every person in this room has a category that says sex, and it either has an M or an F on there for male or female. There is absolute, complete, fundamental consensus on the ability to assign sex at birth. You know, for most women who get pregnant, the... uh, First declaration is, I'm pregnant. And then sometime after that, there's the question, I wonder if it's a boy or a girl. A natural question, a natural longing. And yet I read one activist this week who says, we will not have won on these issues until the question is not even asked anymore about male or female, because after all, there's no ability to know it, and it's utterly irrelevant. So what's going on here? 
What's happening? Well, the push has gone from the normalizing of homosexuality, normalizing to the point where now it is legal in our country for same-sex marriage. And you'll remember if you were around at the time, or I'll remind you, and if you're new, I said at the time when that issue was at hand, that the issue was not about expanding the definition of marriage. It was never about that. It's about destroying the institution of marriage. Making marriage unimportant in a way that it doesn't even make sense. And so what we have seen today is the furthering of those issues. There is no off switch on that. It's not just one thing, you check a box. We're going down a road that, that pushes even farther. Now there's the push for what's called gender fluidity, which means my gender is whatever I think it is. There is the idea of non-binary, meaning I am neither male or female. You know, when, when these ideas first started coming out in the academic literature, they started using the words gender and sex differently when they had normally been synonymous. Gender was usually used in reference to talking about a group of people, either male or female, and sex was used more often to talk about individuals as male or female. But it became to be used in the academic literature as we pushed away from what the entire history of Western civilization has said about these things, to the idea that gender is mental. Gender is what you think. Therefore, it can't be fixed. You might think one thing, and then you think something else. So gender is an issue that's mental. And sex is a physical matter. So it is more fixed, but for the activists related to these things, that's even too rigid. And now the idea is not only that is gender is just mental, but sex is as well. But in reality, the terms are used synonymously. Now, here's what I want us to think about. Whenever professing Christians face these sort of cultural challenges, they respond usually in either one of four ways. And we got to think about it. The first is, some just throw off Christianity and embrace another religion. And I use the word very specifically here because that's what it is. When you're making up categories and redefining words, you're just simply uh, presupposing certain things that you want to be a certain way. And it takes faith. And so, some people in the midst of these kinds of issues are going to say, okay, I reject Christianity and I embrace this new self-expressionism where what is my authority is what is in my mind, what I'm thinking at the moment. But there are some people who will try to blend the two together. They'll try to blunt the force of the opposition of one to the other and they'll try to bend Christianity in a way that compromises it with the prevalent teachings of the day to maintain a cultural respectability. Uh, back when the scientific method became sort of a, almost a religion, I can only know the things I can see, taste, touch, feel, and smell, and what I can put under a microscope is all I can really know. 
you had all kinds of Christians respond to that because those people said, well, this supernatural stuff in the Bible is ridiculous. You had professing Christians say, okay, well, it's not supernatural. That's just telling a story. We reject the supernatural in the Bible, but listen to the message, a attempt to blend the two, which never works. But there's a third category, and that is those who declare war on those who hold aberrant views and mock and ridicule them and ostracize them and essentially hate their enemies. You know, uh, churches have been guilty dealing with these issues of sort of mockery. By the way, these issues are important and holy and sacred. So saying something like, well, the Bible says uh, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, is not the way to handle these issues. But there's a fourth way. And that is to speak biblical truth on every subject, no matter the response, never abandoning the hope of the gospel for yourself or the hope of the gospel for those around you mired in all kinds of issues related to this. You point yourself to Christ and you point them to Christ. And you love your enemies. This is what's unique about Christianity. This is what's utterly unique. The speaking the truth in love. Boldly holding convictions and yet blessing those who persecute you. Wanting your cultural opponents to become your brother and sister. Not to be rejected and ostracized. I hope you see that. That's the difference of Christianity in all other ways of dealing with these issues. We never leave the gospel behind. Four is the only faithfully Christian approach. But as we dig into these things, I want you to see something that's very important for us to see. It's nothing new. For Christians facing these kinds of challenges, or cultural challenges, sexual cultural challenges, is nothing new. Christianity should rescue us from constantly crying, the sky is falling. Christianity should rescue us from saying, nobody's ever faced anything before like what we're facing. That's never true. And by the way, you just sung about a sovereign God, the sky's not falling unless He allows it to fall. Everything we face, people have faced before. I want to give you one example from 1 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth that is mired in the midst of the Greco-Roman world. And Corinth is so, um, the area of Corinth is so uh, mired in sexual immorality that it became to say, to Corinthicize, meant to commit sexual immorality. It became a, a euphemistic way of talking about sexual immorality. Paul says this, beginning in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who, are, who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then note verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
So, so Paul unapologetically says, if you continue in these sins in a way that embraces them and you refuse to repent, then you are rejecting Christ. But for all of these things, you can embrace Christ. We can say, for such are some of you. You see, the Apostle Paul implies here that the gospel was front and center in the way he's commanding the church and Corinth to address these issues. It's not as though these issues have nothing to do with the gospel. The exact opposite is true. You speak the truth on these issues. You preach the gospel. And people in all kinds of sins, no matter what they are, are delivered. And all of us can say about some particular habitual sins in our life. And such was I. And I may still struggle, but I've been washed. Sanctified. Justified. But look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to quickly point out a few things of why Paul is saying what he's saying based on the Greco-Roman worldview. There's reasons why he's talking about these things. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Why does all of a sudden he bring up food? And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Why does he mention food? Because the prevailing thought of the day was that sex was an appetite. And what do you do if uh, you have an appetite? You're hungry, you eat. And guess what? Most people don't want to eat the same thing all the time. So they eat different things. And so sex was like that. You have an appetite, then you appease that appetite. You appease it however you want to. The, the, the thought was, uh, at this time was that it was just like that. And, and Paul says, no, no, no. He says, these things related to sex are sacred. It has everything to do with the God who created you and the God who gave this good gift of sex. These things are sacred. This is not like the issue of an appetite or hunger and you just fill it any way that you see fit. But then notice as it continues, beginning in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two become one flesh. Now, now, first of all, he brings up Genesis here, Genesis 2. But, but, but I also want you to notice, why does he say, don't be with a prostitute? Isn't that obvious? Isn't that clear? Why would he say that? Well, at that time, it was seen as perfectly acceptable for a man. In fact, at that time, it was, seen, uh, that it, it was thought that a man can do whatever he wants to do related to these things. So men were almost all with prostitutes. Men were having affairs with other people. Men who had a servant could make that servant do whatever they wanted them to do. And so this was normal. This, this is what made sense. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 
can't do that. To join Christ in that way? No, that's not what God designed. And by the way, a woman at this time could not. The reason she could not is not because of any sort of commitment for women to be chaste. The reason she could not is that it was a social structure and to know who the inheritance belonged to, you had to know who the father was and for social standing, you had to know who the father was. So women couldn't do this, but men could do basically what they wanted. Then look with me at, the, uh, at verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That's a broad word for all kinds of sexual immorality, which means any sex outside of marriage. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Why is he saying this? Because at that time it was thought material stuff doesn't matter. You have too much of this today in people's minds. Oh, the body, it's just an earthly tent. It'll be discarded. What you do in the flesh doesn't matter. All that matters is spirituality, spirit, soul. As long as your spirit or soul is in the right place, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. God gave you the body. The body is good. And in fact, he goes on to teach that body will be reunited with soul forever and ever for the believer. There will be a bodily resurrection and body and spirit will be joined together. You see, our views of sexuality that people around us may deem scandalous is nothing new. It's normal. But don't ever forget, Paul says, and such were some of you. And by the way, it's normal today. Around the world, missionaries serve in places where polygamy is the norm, and so they're often witnessing to people who are practicing having multiple wives. Those people have come to faith in Christ, and they have to figure out where to go from there. This is nothing new. But what I want us to do is what Paul did in this context. Number one, remember the gospel. And number two, he goes back to God's creative design. You find that again and again in the Bible. Paul references here Genesis chapter 2. I want us to see God's design, male and female. Now, now here's what I want us to do. You know, normally there's the prohibition text that everybody focuses on. And they're there and they're clear and they matter. So do not do this. We have them not only in the Old Testament... Uh, but we have them in the New Testament as well. I read to you 1 Corinthians 6 uh, not too long ago. Just direct prohibitions. But what I want you to see today is that those prohibition texts fit in a larger story. That the Bible begins in such a way and ends in such a way that it communicates to us that male and femaleness matter for the biblical story. See, Genesis 1 starts with a variety of of pairs, complementary pairs, things that are different. They are not alike, and yet they complement one another. Things that, when they complement one another, are better and speak to something glorious about God. These, 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 these binaries that God tells us about here in Genesis chapter 1, they build. They build to the, the final example. He starts with heaven and earth, and he ends with male and female, and then he explains in the next chapter that male and femaleness 
is often expressed in marriage, which is a coming together as well. Just quickly think about this with me. This diverse and unlike, but made to complement and unite to create something beautiful to the glory of God. A dynamic whole that wouldn't exist without these diverse things coming together. The first one is in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very simple. Heaven, earth, they are not the same thing, but the Bible keeps communicating they have a relationship. And ultimately, they're going to come together. And so these things that are not alike but complementary matter. And then he goes in, and I'm not going to read all the verses, but there's a variety of pairs in the world that God created that help us to understand that. There's light and dark in Genesis uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 3 and 4. There's in verse 5, day and night. In uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, there's land and sea. We need both land and sea to live. In Genesis 16, there's sun and moon, the two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. And the Bible goes on, and about 200 times it makes references, like one you read, Pastor Nate, earlier, about heaven and earth. These two things that are different, but meant to complement one another. But notice all of this builds to a particular image that, like heaven and earth, is most significant. The apex of what God is doing in creating these complementary pairs we read about beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let's make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, the heavens, uh, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image, the image, his likeness, a likeness is and is not what it represents. A picture, if I held up a picture of Judy and I said, is that Judy? You might say, yes. But there's a way in which you can say, no. Right? It is and is not like what it represents. It doesn't replace what it represents. So we are uniquely made as human beings in the image of God. We're to reflect God. We're to bear the likeness of God. Then it goes on to say, in the image of God, He created Him... And then here it is, male and female, he created them. Imaging God in the world demanded, according to God, male and female. God is not rightly imaged without the reality of male and female. This is one of the reasons we know clear equality in the sight of God of male and female. It takes both to image Him, and to the degree that we try to erase, ignore, or confuse the two, we're not imaging God in the world. You see, this is the way the story has been told in such a way that male and female are the apex of God's creative design. What did it begin with? Heaven and earth. What does it build to? male and female it says in verse 28 and god blessed them and said to them be fruitful multiply and fill the earth that that's the reflecting god by god's work of filling the earth you are going to fill the earth with image bearers this anticipates the reality of genesis 2 marriage and then it says in verse 31 that god said it was very good all before he said it was good and now it's very good 
Then in Genesis 2, there's another telling of the creation story. And it focuses on that apex of God's creative design, male and female. Equally image bearers in the sight of God. Equal but different with complementary roles, both called to take dominion to the glory of God. You see, the complementary of male and female is given a particular concrete expression that's very important to the story of the Bible. In fact, the first not good in the Bible, up until this point it was good, 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 very good. The first not good is Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, a partner fit for him, a complement fit for him. Different from him, but designed to complement and unite in a way that brings glory and honor to the Creator. That's what we get in Genesis 2, 23 and 24. Look with me there. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Hebrew Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. You see, even the complementary relationship there in those words, and it actually comes across in the English very well, man and woman. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is difference in unity that creates something beautiful according to God's design. This is what God was doing. And we aren't left to wonder what God's design is. The, the, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 31, quotes the passage about leaving and cleaving and holding fast. And then he says this in 532, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we don't have time, but we can go to the end of our Bibles. And if I would have you read Revelation 19 through 21... And I ask you what the most important thing in that section was. The answer would be that the Bible says that God is going to consummate His kingdom and God is going to bring about the new heavens and new earth. That His redeemed people are going to live apart from the presence of sin in a new heavens and new earth. The very beginning, God created heaven and earth. It's fallen to sin. There's a new heavens and new earth. Well, then if you press in and ask, what is the symbol of the new heavens and new earth? We see it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the marriage of Christ and His church. That's the symbol of the new heavens and new earth. God is bringing heaven and earth together. The heaven comes down and joins earth in what can be called a new heaven and new earth. And ultimately, this picture of marriage is brought together with Christ the groom with His bride outside of the presence of sin forever and ever. Do you see how this is the whole warp and woof of the biblical story that these categories are a part of? You see, if... If marriage is merely a convenient social arrangement for companionship and sex, then that opens the door not just to something like same-sex marriage. It opens the door to basically anything. If there's nothing more going on here than for the sake of convenience, I want a companion. Who's to say it's not for companions? 
what case do you make against polygamy or polyandry, many husbands? What case do you make against consenting adults in incest? There is no case. If this is just social convenience, then anything that doesn't harm someone else goes. But it's not. You see, and this is the reason why we have to understand that there are things at stake that matter. And loving our neighbor means speaking the truth on these things. The issue with rejecting polygamy and homosexuality and transgenderism and gender fluidity is not a few verses here and there in the Bible. Those verses here and there in the Bible fit in the entirety of the biblical story. See, the consequences of rejecting God's design in total are devastating. You've got a couple of options. Either there are male and female, and we all fit into those categories, and the design of marriage is one man and one woman in covenant faithfulness, and any sex outside of that is to be rejected. Either you have that, or the Bible's not true. But by the way, the issue of marriage being a man and a woman, that involves the entirety of Western civilization, including Judaism and Islam, even though Islam opens the door for polygamy. You see, this is what's at stake. This is not an issue of a few verses here and there. And I also want you to see this. It's also clear that Jesus cannot be separated from these issues. In fact, he is the key to why male and female is so important. He's the key. Some people will say, well, but when we look at the teaching of Jesus, he didn't say much about these things. Well, Jesus explains his whole life and ministry in terms of the Old Testament. Jesus affirms the Old Testament as true, as the Word of God. He came, he said, to fulfill it. And his entire life anticipates the apostolic message to come because his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension can't rightly be explained until it happens. And so he says himself, I'm not teaching you all things there are to know and those that are coming after. So the Jesus in the Bible affirms the biblical message in both directions, Old and New Testament. But notice this, in answering a question about divorce in Matthew, I mean in Mark 10, it's also in Matthew, but in Mark 10, I want you to notice Jesus appeals to Genesis 2.24 for the authority of marriage and committing one to another. Now he does that because that is the apex of the whole teaching and it's an affirmation that everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is true. Mark 10, beginning in verse 6. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus takes for granted that there are male and female, that everybody belongs in those categories. And He takes for granted that the message of Genesis 1 and 2 is true, and He quotes it for His authority applying to a particular issue. He's asked about divorce, but it also applies to the the, the myriad of other issues. Genesis 2.24 about a man and a woman leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh. It means that 
Same-sex marriage is not acceptable. It means that ignoring gender is not acceptable. It means that polygamy is not acceptable. It means all kinds of things that we find in the Scripture. That it is male and female, and man and woman leave and come together, and only sexual activity in the context of that covenant relationship is acceptable. You see, we must be committed to sexuality that images God. And to fail to say something true about the gospel, about Christ and the church, is to deviate from the biblical message. See, we we could press into this a lot more. But what I want you to see is this. These things aren't new. That this is not just about a few texts scattered. Those texts scattered make sense in light of the larger story that God is telling that presupposes that people are male and female and that marriage is how the world is propagated and that we are to live under His authority and design. See, male and female matter. Much is at stake with this. We must speak the truth on these matters, not just simply because we want uh, certain views to, to be upheld, but because it's terribly damaging to repudiate God's design. The reason we must speak on these matters is because we love our neighbors. And there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is destruction. I'm going to talk about one more text. Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what's going on here in this verse, he goes on to talk about the Abrahamic promise. He's talking about the issue of salvation and the way people take earthly distinctions took earthly distinction and act as though those were bearing on whether or not you could be saved. He's not rejecting that there are earthly distinctions. He's saying that none of those have bearing on your standing before God. You are in the same position as all other guilty sinners and you need the gospel and God can save. But but think about this. Jew nor Greek? Are, Are those identities created in one's mind? Male and, I mean, slave and free, are those identities that you create in your mind? No, they're not, and neither is male and female. These distinctions have nothing to do with salvation, though the distinctions are there nonetheless. And all rightly comes together in Christ. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. God is at work in the world, it tells us in Ephesians 1.10, uniting all things in Christ. That's the beauty of the promise in a new heaven, new earth, when we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride is with the groom forever and ever. A couple of other things. There are those who say, well, you know, this is like slavery and racism. The church got that wrong, it's got this wrong. Eventually we'll evolve into understanding that this is all fine. Absurd. There has never been a time when the majority of Christians in the world endorsed slavery or racism. Comparing the amount of melanin in somebody's skin, which is nowhere forbidden in the Bible, to acts that are specifically forbidden in the Bible is absurd. 
It's an absurd comparison. And Christianity has been the force in the world that has ultimately liberated slaves around the world. Now, the idea of skin-colored slavery is, is unique to the modern time of the African slave trade and chattel slavery in the United States when a lot of people did argue for slavery, but they did it because of money, and there were all kinds of Christian voices repudiating it, and the majority reported that the church has never been endorsing any form of racism or slavery. But the entire history of the testimony of the church has said that there are male and female, and that marriage is one man and one woman, and sex only in the confines of the covenant of marriage is acceptable. The entire history of the Christian church. You have a few voices here and there today, but not very many. The comparison is absurd. Somebody also says, well, what about intersex people? These are people who biologically are born without clear identifying reproductive organs. Um, it's about 0.2% of the people who are born. Doctors still assign male and female at birth based on the data as they can uh, sort it out the best they can. And this is a situation in which we ought to have compassion there's all kinds of people who are born without a variety of body parts or uh, with mental difficulties and all kinds of other things. What is our response to that? It's a fallen world and we have compassion. And those are people equally uh, who bear the image of God and ought to be honored and in fact often teach us much. What is the answer to this? Well, it's like the man born blind. You work the works of God a testimony of commitment to God in the midst of the challenges that are very real uh, is what ought to be given. But intersex people are not some third category that we cast away from the rest of society. They're people who ought to be treated with compassion. You'll hear the term today, gender dysphoria. It means that somebody in their mind begins to think differently about their gendered identity than their physical body it used to be called gender identity disorder because that's what it is somebody who's confused somebody who has longings that are not according to god's design we have longings about all kinds of things that are not according to god's design we don't say that all of our longings are true are right we have to deal with those longings in an honest way and by the way gender dysphoria is a real problem people struggle with and they need to know that we are here to speak with them and to care for them read a story this week about Kiera Bell girl in the United Kingdom 15 years old she's unhappy had a difficult life didn't know what was wrong and somebody said you you know you may just be the wrong gender and so uh, her father begged her not to go through gender transitioning and yet she went to uh, the hospital and she did it, 15 years old. My daughters cannot get aspirin at school without parental permission at 15 years old. And this girl is changing her gendered identity. So she goes through the process. It's very, very painful and not great. And she realizes I've done the wrong thing and moves in a different direction and ultimately sues the hospital She's not a believer, but uh, 
she understood that this was crazy what was going on. The last line of the article says this, I was an unhappy girl who needed help, and instead I was treated like an experiment. Like a lab rat. It's horrible. Puberty blockers are being pushed and administered on kids between the ages of 10 and 16 years old in the process in which puberty begins. Social transitioning is starting uh, sometimes at three years old. I read an account of a boy that said, you know, I don't want to be a boy, and so, okay, and they began socially transitioning the child. Folks, this is, this is cruel devastatingly harmful. And we must not be silent about these things. But even as we speak the truth, we must remember the gospel and remember that we speak of sacred things. My friend Sam Alberry recently said, our culture says, your mind is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says, your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. There's really two key ways in which we must respond. One is that largely we've been a part of the problem. We must love, champion, and explain the incredible mystery of male and femaleness and the incredible mystery of marriage as a glorious thing, as a sacred thing. You see, a lot of professing Christians have treated it just like a social contract for self-fulfillment. And if it works for me, good. If it doesn't, good. We've been a part of that problem. That's the same mindset. But what if we began to actually create a culture in our homes and our church where these things are treated with the reverence we see them treated in the Bible. That it's a part of God's design. That we always ought to have a sense of awe about them. And marriage is full of mystery and worth giving your life to working on. But there's a second thing that we must always do. And it's what Paul says, we speak the truth as in Jesus. I love the phrase he uses in Ephesians. Speak the truth as it is in Jesus. Meaning that we don't lack any sort of unwillingness to say what's right about these things. Many of you may struggle in these ways. Many of you may have family members who struggle in these ways. You may be dealing with these issues yourself. We must never speak an untrue word about these things. But we do it as in Jesus, meaning the gospel always matters most. You see, when we're dealing with people on these things, even things which seem so obvious to us, our position is one of humility. Because here's where we were. We were apart from Christ, doomed and damned apart from His grace. That's the same position everyone else is in us too. We never speak from a high and mighty condescending platform or when we do, we don't do it in Jesus' name. That's all about us. So we pair those two things. We speak the truth without apology. And we never, ever forget the gospel in our own lives. And we never, ever forget the power of the gospel 
in anyone else's life either. We certainly don't say, well, this is so odd that, I mean, I don't know what to say. God forbid you ever say you don't know what to say. You know what to say. Jesus. He's Lord and he saves. Let me tell you how he saved me in spite of my sin. He can do it for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your your glorious word. I thank you for the saving message of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that um, these are not issues that we don't have a word to speak to. Lord, we speak because you have spoken. And that means not only speaking what is true, but speaking what is hope, and that is the truth of the gospel. Lord, make us these people. Thank you that you have created us male and female. Thank you for marriage. Thank you for Christ and the church. And thank you that there is coming a new heavens, a new earth, where whether we've been married or not, or whether however we've failed, those who come there by faith celebrate that marriage forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.